3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. 3CR recognizes elders past and present of the Kulin Nations and their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to late 30 a.m. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and it is myself and Inez in the studio. Good morning, Inez. Good morning. Oh, it is another another day. It's a chilly, chilly morning. Um, hope everybody out there is keeping warm. Um, I hope you're excited to hear some amazing uh, 3CR radio content today. Just the best. Exactly. So uh, to kick us off, we have some Vox Pops from Sunday's May Day Rally with Giselle Hanna from Accent of Women and Asia Pacific Currents and also featuring Michael from Rafu or the Renters and Fast Food Workers. Uh, sorry, not Renters. Ah, I'm getting Rahu and Rafu mixed up. I mean, the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, you'd think I'd know since we had them on last week. Um, Mary from the Save Public Housing Collective and other attendees that were at the May Day Rally. So this was on Sunday, the 1st of May, where uh, 3CR actually had dedicated coverage from, I believe, 12 to 3. And you can find that full broadcast at 3cr.org.au and looking up our May Day 2022 broadcast. Um, what do we have on next? And then we have Justin Warren, the chair of Electronics Frontiers uh, Australia, and they join us to discuss online privacy and digital surveillance and Privacy Week 2022, a Australian government initiative which runs from the 2nd to the 8th of May. Electronic Frontiers Australia is a non-for-profit national organisation working to promote and protect digital rights. And then afterwards, we hear from Dakshayani Surya Kumaran, who's a 
Director of Tech Policy at Reset Australia, which is a think tank and research organization working to tackle digital threats to democracy. They're also a PhD candidate at ANU looking at the impact of technology in social welfare and border policing. And they join us today to discuss how YouTube's algorithms contribute to promoting misogynistic, anti-feminist and other extremist content to Australian boys and young men. Now, we will repeat a content warning right before and also after the interview, but just a heads up to be advised that this interview may discuss intimate partner violence and could be distressing to hear, and it'll air at about 7.45 for around 15 minutes. Yep, and then we will be joined by Joshua Trevez, who is a long-time Collingwood resident and soul funk singer. They join us to discuss the residents-led push to save Collingwood's public housing green space, along with a pushback against new development on the Collingwood estate. Joshua has been involved in community events and initiatives, including the Collingwood Underground Roller Disco and Dolphins Gym, a black queer gym partnering with the Koori Parade. You can find out more inside the position organised by Collingwood Public Housing Residents at change.org, um, and we will put a link in the notes. Yes, that is correct. And, yeah, there's going to be an action for that tomorrow, so that is uh, Friday the 6th of May, and Joshua's going to tell us all about it, and there, there'll be information about that in the show notes as well. So there's both the petition and then the option to show up in person and help them deliver the message to Richard Wynn and Lily D'Ambrosio. So big show as as usual this week. I'm excited about the focus on more tech stuff because I think, um, you know, some of this is slipping under the radar. There's been a little bit of fear mongering from the United Australia Party and stuff around the uh, digital identity. But once again, with all of the stuff that are that's sort of hitting as like major election issues, we're kind of circumventing, you know, some of the important things about, you know, who gets to actually be private on mm-hmm. the Internet, etc. Yeah, so big show today. Uh, we might head to a CSA and we'll come back to you with headlines. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science, and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people, and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. These are the news headlines for Thursday the 5th of May. Reports emerged on Tuesday this week that people are being forcibly removed from Nam or Melbourne to the Christmas Island Detention Centre, a centre that the Australian Human Rights Commission has recommended for urgent decommission. People held at the Melbourne Immigration Transit Accommodation were probably handcuffed without notice, loaded onto minibuses and are in the process of being transferred. Activists activists blockading the area have been pepper sprayed by police while attempting to block the buses. The Department of Home Affairs has refused to provide adequate information on why the transfers are occurring, with advocates noting this is a deliberate move by the Morrison government in caretaker mode, saying it is cruelty for cruelty's sake. In other news today, an activist hacking group claims to have leaked 285,000 emails belonging to the Nauru police force in protest against Australia's offshore detention policy. 
The emails reportedly reveal conditions of the island and abuses endured by asylum seekers and refugees detained there. The group is calling for the next Australian government to end mandatory immigration detention, grant permanent residency to asylum seekers, and investigate claims of abuse and also to pay reparations to those detained. Also in headlines, the Victorian state budget was handed down this week, with community organisations and groups criticising the lack of funding for critical support services. The Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service says this is the eighth eighth consecutive budget that endangers Aboriginal legal services while funding for prisons and police officers continues to grow. The budget also failed to deliver much-needed funding for public housing and homelessness support. The Victorian Council of Social Services says the budget reveal that average wait times for housing support will increase, including for those on priority lists and those experiencing family violence. In an update on industrial action taking place this week, thousands of public school teachers marched through Sydney and in towns across New South Wales yesterday as part of their 24-hour strike over wages and conditions. At the strike rallies, teachers spoke of unmanageable workloads and class sizes, with some saying it's the worst conditions they've seen in classrooms in 30 years. And in other news, on May 10th, uh, sorry, May 10th has been set up as the aged care workers' um, Sorry, I'll start that again. May 10th has been set up as the day that aged care workers will strike across the country in unprecedented industrial action over pay and working conditions. 160 facilities run by some of the biggest aged care providers will be affected by the National Day of Action, with the United Workers' Union reassuring that residents at those facilities will be cared for during the mass walkout. Union representatives say aged care workers are fed up waiting for the federal government to address the current aged care crisis, with consistent failures to act despite the Royal Commission that began in 2018. And finally in headlines, news analysis published this week shows that in a typical month, nearly one in four people who receive income support have had their payments suspended due to the current employment services model's rigid and harmful mutual obligation requirements. The Australian Council of Social Services says that almost half of the payment suspensions are because people cannot meet unrealistic job search targets. The research shows that the inflexible targets lead to frequent errors by providers, resulting in incorrect suspension of payments that can cause high levels of stress for people seeking support. These have been the news headlines for Thursday the 5th of May. You're listening to 3CR and it is 7.10. Thanks, Inez. And just want to add one more thing onto that, which is that the coronial inquest into the death of Veronica Marie Nelson is ongoing at the Victoria Coroner's Court. And, um, you know, family are asking for people to come and support if they can, but you can also watch via a video link. And there's lots more information about that, including live, dub- live updates from the coronial inquest via the Dajawa Foundation. So if you look up Dajawa Foundation, that's D-H-A-D-J-O-W-A Foundation on Instagram, but also on Twitter, you'll be able to access those updates as well as how you can either attend in person or stream live. And it's just really important to keep an eye on this process. Um, you know, it's another tragic Aboriginal death in custody. Um, and, you know, the family needs all the support that we can provide at this time, especially as uh, this year we've seen so much more concerns come out about the, uh, you know, devastating effects of medical racism and now seeing how that interacts with the carceral system. PX Fano is a Pacifica LGBTIQ plus podcast providing a platform for Pacifica communities to unpack and discuss the narratives and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. 
presented by Pacific X, a collective that celebrates Pacific Island LGBTIQ plus communities through meaningful connections that honours cultural and gender identities. You can catch the podcast series every Sunday during Out of the Pan at around 12.30pm or on your favourite podcast platform. Supported by 3CR and funded by the Victorian Government Multicultural Communications Outreach Programme. For more information, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash out of the pan. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. You might be listening via radio. You might be streaming us via our, our website. And uh, just a reminder, you can always do that at 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And if you want to listen back to any of our previous episodes, you can always head to 3cr.org.au forward slash Thursday dash breakfast. That's right. If you missed out on any of our incredible interviews, you can always listen back on demand. So, um, just a little plug there. Please go back, have a listen. Tell us what you liked. Tell us what you didn't like. Well, no, only give us good feedback. Anyway, we're going to jump into some Vox Pops, and these were from Sunday's May Day Rally, uh, where 3CR had a dedicated live broadcast for uh, around 12, uh, 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. on the day. And this was Giselle Hanna from Accent of Women and Asia-Pacific Currents and featured Michael from RAFWU, or the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, and Mary from the Safe Public Housing Collective, as well as other attendees at the rally. I'm now joined here by Michael Johnstone, one of the lead organisers for RAFWU, the uh, Retail and Fast Food Industry Workers Union. Did I get that right, Michael? You nailed it. Well done. (laughs) It is a tongue twister. (laughs) So tell me, of course, your members have been so severely impacted by COVID. Tell me what's happening in your sector. Yeah, for the last few years, our um, employers and our sectors, including some of Australia's largest uh, employers, Woolies and Coles and Maccas, they've been dragging their feet, really. They've been doing a, a few different things for PR, but, for example, Coles are refusing to come to the table and bargain with workers who are paid, at the moment, their base rate is less than the living wage in Australia, which is pretty disgusting. We've had a fantastic group of workers, though, in Sydney take militant action and take uh, industrial action, which forced their employer to increase their wages and conditions, which is what we want to see, but we, um, we want to see more of that. We want to, we're going to help workers uh, unionise and organise and take the action needed to improve their conditions of pay. Well, actually, your members are in a unique situation where their bosses uh, made skyrocketing profits under COVID when we saw a lot of industries close down, a lot of your workers, particularly those in supermarkets, um, massive profits, yet wages didn't move. Yeah, that's right. It's absolutely disgusting. Like they, we've seen these employers for the last few years um, celebrate their workers, but they don't actually put their money where their mouth is. Like these workers are still paid abysmal rates. So we're, we're keen to get workers organised and to have workers take action to change that. Because we know it's workers taking action and coming together um, is the only thing that's ever changed these situations for people. And then, of course, you're out here at May Day. May Day is a significant event on the international workers' calendar. Why is today so important to you? Um, today is about, well, for us it's about reflecting on all the things that the union or collective labour has won in the past, but it's also about 
um, building the solidarity with the different groups across Australia and across the world who are fighting for better conditions and better pay. So, um, and reminding ourselves of what we need to keep fighting for, like what we've been talking about. There's a lot that needs to be fought for still um, in 2022. So um, today is a fantastic uh, day for everyone to get together and sort of express that solidarity together and as we continue that fight. Michael, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. That was Michael Johnstone. He's a lead organiser in RAFWU, the retail and fast food industry. Um, we're going to go to a banner holder now. We're broadcasting live from Community Radio 3CR. Uh, sorry, we're broadcasting live on 3CR from the May Day Rally here in Melbourne, Victoria. Comrade, you're holding a banner here. What's your name? Uh, my name's Mary. Hi, Mary, and tell us about your banner and your campaign. Oh, it's the Safe Public Housing Collective, and um, you know we've been um, campaigning for a long time to build, get more public housing built because at the moment they're demolishing it and um, not building public housing in its place. They're only building like expensive apartments and I mean community housing has its place but it shouldn't be replacing public housing which is much the best solution. We absolutely need a big, big program of public housing building as one of the ingredients of quite a few things that need, are needed for the solution to you know, um, the housing crisis we have. And I know you guys have been doing heaps around campaigning for this issue, but my question for you is, why at Mayday? How do you see the relationship between the Campaign for Public Housing and the workers' movement? Oh, look, it used to be that um, some of the very best defenders of public housing were the trade union movement. Um, in the past, you know, years back, they stopped the demolition of, of housing estates. Um, and they really, you know, in the past have been great supporters of public housing. We want to have that back again because public housing is just such an incredibly um, important thing to reduce homelessness and the, there's no need for it to be a stigmatised kind of thing. We want quality building, public housing that's built to, um, you know, be good environmentally, green housing um, that's will be very well insulated against heat and we're going to have some terrible climate problems. We should have public housing to withstand that. It should be a priority for all governments because, you know, it's just long, long overdue. And look, we just have got to stop this situation where governments are just in the pockets of developers. We just, people should not be profiting out of um, a need for housing. Housing is a right. Yeah, it's an absolute right. Um, and it shouldn't be an investment opportunity. And unfortunately, that's the way that the Liberals see it, very much the Liberals. Um, but Labour, in some ways, isn't much better because they've been selling you know, public land for way too long and not building public housing. I know they're terribly caught because if the federal government doesn't invest in public housing, it's very difficult for state governments, the way that things are structured. But really, you know, is, the need is desperate, absolutely desperate. Well, Comrade, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. We were talking to an activist in the Save Public Housing Coalition about their campaign for public housing and we're broadcasting live from the May Day Rally. The Save Public Housing Coalition is a significant contingent here. Of course, housing is a workers' issue. I'm joined now by another comrade. I'm from 3CR. Thank you. 
Um, so why are you here for May Day? I just remember May Day. I'm working, I'm a hard worker, so I have to remember May Day. And, of course, um, there are a lot of demands on the list for workers at the moment. What are some of the issues most important to you? Well, the most important thing is, is just to look after the workers and also the wage and uh, the life of uh, standard of uh, all the um, grassroots is uh, in trouble They're because of the increasing of the life of uh, standard in Australia. So they must have protected, the workers must be protected and have uh, enough wages. And of course May Day is an international day. Workers across the world are marching today. What do you think some of the most important international solidarity campaigns are? The most important is just tonight all workers internationally and uh, working uh, together in the solidarity. So our solidarity makes change. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. We're broadcasting live from the May Day Rally here on Community Radio 3CR. And I'm just speaking to people in the march to see why they're here, why today's so important. Hello, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. And what's your name? My name's Sandra. And why are you out here today? Um, I think it's really important to support workers' rights given the... Um, um, well, given the onslaught against them. Well, that's right. We're in the middle of an election campaign where the onslaught is being seen far more acutely. What do you think the biggest issues are facing workers in this upcoming election campaign? Well, let's just revisit something first in terms of all that bullshit about Albanese not being able to get the employment rate right, right? Those figures are absolute rubbish. If someone's working one hour a week, they're employed now. So that leads into the fact that current employment can be so insecure as well as low paid. And part of that, I think, stems back from instead of having a really big march and big unions, we don't have that anymore. But that's been an ongoing process for the past couple of decades. And it's been quite deliberate in terms of the powers that be. So we just have to keep going and hope we get a better deal. Absolutely. Well, actually, one of the people I spoke to in the rally earlier today said one of the biggest issues facing workers is the demise of the union movement. You said something a bit similar to that. Do you think there are laws that have caused that decline? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, there was the whole thing about the craft unions being consolidated ages and ages ago in relation to the Hawke-Keating era and or before that. So that meant that you had bigger unions, which sound, sounded pretty good, but then union positions tended to become um, career options, right? And people didn't necessarily come into that type of activity from a shop floor. I think that's sort of very important in terms of how you position yourself and, you know, as, as a worker, how you position yourself and what you attempt to do. But it's been more subtle than that too in terms of the actual changes in the legislation, uh, right to strike, not to strike, um, and all that sort of stuff, which has again been quite deliberate. And it's no... It, 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 it wasn't a fluke that John Howard came adrift in the go for Rudd 
because of the work choices, so-called work choices legislation that was being in. And at that stage, the trade union movement and people who supported them, because um, I'm retired, so I'm not in the... Oh, yeah, I am. I'm, I'm in a retired union members organisation. Um, actually sort of um, campaigned very, very hard um, about, about that, which you don't hear so much in the, um, in the media. And I think the other problem is the way the media represents things, OK? Um, the other thing that I would mention would be the opportunity to actually sort of start your own business. And that's in conjunction with this, you know, contractor work. You know, are you a contractor? Are you an employee? And what sort of, what sort of hard-fought things are you losing in terms of sick pay, etc., etc.? Um, and people sort of, I don't know, um, I don't know how to overcome it, but you can get organisations that aren't just big fist and men um, that are quite good unions, like the nurses and so forth. So. Well, that, that was very insightful. You said a lot of things about what um, the unions have to deal with. Thank you so much for your time today. Good on you for doing your work. You're listening to Community Radio 3CR. We are broadcasting live from the May Day Rally. We are currently marching up Russell Street. We're about to cross Lonsdale Street. So if you're curious about the route that we took, we travelled down Latrobe Street, up Swanston Street, up Burke Street, and now we're walking back to Trades Hall, crossing Lonsdale Street now, here on Community Radio 3CR. I'm Giselle. We're going to go do some community announcements and then we'll bring you more voices from the rally. Y'all know y'all know how to kick it out. Because uh, as we know, the saying is, if we don't fight, we lose. If we don't fight, we lose. Whether we're talking about union issues, whether we're talking about civil and political rights issues, if we don't stand, if we don't fight, then we lose. And that's what it's about. 3CR. Kicking against the pricks since 1976. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And you just heard a couple of Vox Pops from Sunday's May Day Rally. And that was hosted by Giselle Hanna from Accent of Women in Asia Pacific Currents. And Giselle spoke with Michael from the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, or RAFWU, Mary from the Safe Public Housing Collective, and some other attendees as well. And 3CR had a dedicated broadcast for that May Day rally running from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. And you can listen back to that whole thing at 3cr.org.au if you just look up the May Day rally broadcast. Um, there's been some, there have been some excellent interviews and rally speeches there as well. And you can also find out more about RAFWU at raffwu.org.au and Save Public Housing Collective at savepublichousing.com. And again, if you want to listen back to Giselle, look up Accent of Women and Asia Pacific Currents on 3CR. Um, it is 7.27 in the morning. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. 
Panoply, Panorama, Panpipe, Pansy, Aha, Pansexual, Knowing No Boundaries of Sex or Gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. Accented women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accented women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are, two, where there are armies there and terrorists there, such conflict every single day of their lives? Accented women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast, 3CR 855 AM. And we are joined now by Justin Warren, who's the chair of of Electronic Frontiers Australia. And Justin joins us to discuss online privacy and digital surveillance in Privacy Week 2022, which is an initiative which runs from the 2nd to the 8th of May. Justin, thank you so much for joining us. That is my pleasure. Well, it is excellent to have you here to discuss some of these really important issues about privacy and digital surveillance. So to begin with, can you tell us a bit about the Privacy Week initiative in the context of privacy reform in Australia? You know, because we've seen the current review of the Privacy Act 1988. So this is clearly a hot topic for government. Sure. Um, Well, if you haven't heard of Privacy Awareness Week, uh, it happens every year. And if you haven't heard of it, this is why. Um, so the government's been reviewing the Privacy Act since, uh, well, the current review's been running since the 12th of December 2019. And you might ask why it's taking so long. And that would be a good question to ask, I think. Uh, people have been asking successive governments to do more about their privacy for pretty much decades. Um, I was recently reviewing one of EFA's submissions to a review back in 2004. And we were saying a lot of the same things that we, we said with this current inquiry. And governments have been, unfortunately, pretty slack about doing very much about protecting people's privacy and also pretty lax in ensuring that those who don't respect our privacy actually suffer adverse consequences to kind of act as a disincentive. And that's why privacy harms have actually increased. You know, we see um, well, we see data breaches happening near constantly. We see news about various social media sites, particularly Facebook, um, on a near daily basis about just how poorly they've done at protecting our privacy. But it's not just the big tech companies, it's also just you know, small businesses and indeed government departments. Mm. And this the sort of system of incentives that was set up, that's it's doing what it was designed to do. And people are pretty fed up. So um, that's actually pretty encouraging. So at EFA, we've noticed uh, that our members and the broader community are pretty are standing up and saying, look, enough. It stops now and are really demanding that uh, the government changes the Privacy Act to really strengthen those protections, but also to make sure that there are um, checks and balances against the power that a lot of these companies have amassed through collecting all of this data on us, 
spying on us and conducting surveillance. So we're trying to get get those changes pushed through and uh, we're hopeful that whoever forms government uh, will finally listen. Yeah, absolutely. And it really brings to mind an interview that we did recently with Jason Spadowski from uh, Monash University where we're kind of talking about the regulatory environment in Australia and just the uh, the sort of tech optimistic view that government has taken, which has allowed a lot of, I guess, digital harms and um, use of data, you know, rampantly um, and data sharing to kind of proliferate as um, Australia is kind of marketing itself as the testing ground for tech innovation. So this will be really interesting to, to watch the development of. Uh, now, listeners might be aware that political parties are exempt from the Privacy Act, which enables things like unsolicited, unless unsolicited campaign texts. Sorry, um, can you tell us a bit more about the implications of uh, this exemption and some of the concerns around this as well? Um, well, well, it functionally it means that there's one law for us and a different one for politicians, and it's pretty easy to see why politicians would want that, wouldn't it? Um, we, we've been pretty strong since the very beginning of when the Privacy Act came in uh, that political parties should absolutely not be exempt. Um, neither should small business. People may not be aware that uh, that any business under, I think it's $3 million in turnover is classed as a small business, and they're also exempt from the Privacy Act. And uh, I think it's something around 94% of the businesses in Australia are small businesses. So there's a lot of data held by them as well. So we, we say that, yeah, look, there should be one, one law for everyone to follow. Um, we think that there are certainly those with greater power should be held to a higher standard. And government uh, has a lot of power. So they absolutely should be held to the highest standards of protecting our privacy. And that goes for political parties as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so privacy concerns um, are most often discussed in terms of companies' access to and handling of data. But as you've mentioned, government has that highest level of power um, and therefore should be held to account accordingly. And when it comes to government surveillance, who actually does get to exercise rights to privacy? And do you see a stratification of access to privacy or, you know, privacy management strategies across demographic categories? Because I'm thinking of, for example, about welfare recipients who have a real wealth of data collected about them and then shared between government departments as part of quite stringent eligibility criteria. Yeah, uh, look, privacy has always been something that powerful people get more of than less powerful people. Um, and we've, unfortunately, in the dying days of the last parliament, uh, they passed what's called the Data Availability and Transparency Act, uh, which doesn't actually make government um, data available and transparent to us. It makes data about us more available and transparent to government. Um, it's a really imperial view of how governments function. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's sort of based in Western um, white people's colonisation. It's a very imperial system where you have these uh, these central bureaucrats or these elitist um, uh, controlling people who have all of the knowledge and they go out and tell the peasants what they should do and they collect all the data from the peasants and structure the lives of the people that are being monitored to make them easier to collect those statistics and information. Um, there's a great book about this called Seeing Like a State, which I really recommend people read. Um, it's not limited to Western democracies. It was the same process that, that happened in the USSR. It was the same process that um, happened in uh, communist China. So 
it's a really common way of power structures reinforcing themselves. Um, so, like, if you're homeless, you don't get to close your curtains at night because you don't have any curtains. So privacy is very much linked to things like property rights and, and notions of who deserves property and who doesn't. And as we've discussed, information is power, and the powerful love to use surveillance to maintain that power and to use it on those who don't have power. And that's what, that's what makes having power so much fun, I guess. The rich people always get more privacy than poor people, partly because they can afford it. And privacy is a lot about control over who gets to know what about you and the power to ensure that your wishes are respected. And that's one of the things that we want to see changed is that there's not actually a lot of power for you as an individual, uh, partly over controlling who can see your information. And then once it's actually left your immediate control, so once you've given this data to government, you don't really have much control over it anymore. Um, so what you need then is power to ensure that your wishes are respected. So, for example, if you go to the doctor, like you, you want to trust your doctor with quite personal intimate details about your health and your body so that they can help you. And they hold this information about you in trust, like you trust them with it. And being called a fiduciary, if you want to get fancy, it's a, it's a duty of acting in good faith with regard to the interests of another. And you need power, either individual power, particularly if you're a rich person, or systemic power if you're not rich, gathering together with everyone around us to, for example, agree on what the laws are and how it is enforced if someone breaks the trust that you've put, them in, put into them. So if your doctor or Medicare or the government sells your data to an insurance firm, a rich person has lots of options to exact revenge on someone who wrongs them or seek redress, if you want to be a little bit more polite about it. Uh, but if you're poor, what are you going to do? Complain to the regulator and hope? And that, unfortunately, is kind of the situation we're in at the moment. The regulator has stepped up a bit lately to address some of the more egregious uh, privacy violations. But as, a, as an individual... If it's not deemed to be a big enough deal by either the government or the police, you're kind of on your own. Yeah, it, it is really, um, I guess, quite galling to see this stratification of um, ability to both, um, I guess, state your privacy rights and then have those enforced um, I think as well in in terms of the way that, you know, government policy is kind of made and the idea that the collection and then integration of, of data across government departments will allow from this for this abstract abstracted um, evidence based uh, policy making where they can use data points rather than necessarily talking to people that are most marginalized when developing policy. These sorts of things have quite big implications, um, you know, when there's a removal of this data and the creation of a, of a profile that might really not match, uh, you know, things that are happening on the ground. So those questions about privacy are really quite salient in a lot of different ways. Um, now, privacy and digital surveillance have come up as a bit of an election issue in their own right via the United Australia Party and Great Australia Party's fear-mongering about a proposed digital identity bill. But this aside, have any parties come forward with particularly strong positions on digital rights and privacy? Not really, no. Um, I mean, unfortunately, the, we don't have a rich history of um, very good tech policy in Australia. It's getting better, but it's taking a long time. 
there is a bit of a reactionary anti-big tech stance at the moment because, again, people broadly are very upset at the behaviour of particularly the large concentration of power that these big tech companies have. And, and that's really what it's about. It's about feeling disempowered that you, know, you can't negotiate with, with Google or Facebook. They can just do whatever they want. And we've been saying there should be consequences for that for a long, long time, and governments have failed to act. They're finally waking up to the fact that, well, actually, this is important enough about us that we're going to, you know, we're demanding that you do something or you personally are going to suffer consequences. Weirdly enough, power works. Who knew? Um, so they're starting to react to that. Uh, but it's being done in a really, um, I don't know, ham-fisted way, and it's it's kind of a fig leaf of, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll do something about the big thing and we'll, we'll try to paper over that a bit, but we won't address any of the systemic problems. Um, and we really want to see changes made that will actually address some of those systemic problems. So one thing about the reason that Google and Facebook and, and firms like that have so much of this power is because it's, it's a, they are able to sell the information that they surveil from you. So um, data surveillance and ad tech um, is really big business. Um, there's a lot of power in that. We know that because that's why we have spies. Um, that's that's what, what, why we have um, data brokers. And it's always been that way. There are legitimate uses for it, but there's a lot of stuff which is being done that's really, really quite shady. Um, UAP and um, what are they called, Great Australia Party, um, what, they, what they seem to be doing is that they're tapping into that feeling of disenfranchisement and, and powerlessness. Uh, because as we've discussed, the privacy thing is really all about power. And there's a lot of people out there who are feeling uh, that the systems that, that are in place um, have let them down. They're not being heard. They're not being involved. They don't feel connected to the society that they're supposed to be the part of. And there are a lot of forces that enjoy creating division because that stokes this feeling that, you know, oh, well, someone must, must do something about this. And they put themselves forward as the solution to the problem they've created. And again, it's really all about power, who has it and who gets to use it on who. Um, and people with power very rarely give it up voluntarily, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I, you, can't, you can't underscore that last point enough. Um, so just to wrap up, Justin, uh, did you want to share any simple privacy protection reminders that listeners might be able to implement this morning? And... Um, and where can people find more about the work of Electronic Frontiers Australia as well? Sure. Um, well, you can, our website is efa.org.au. Um, that's probably the best place. We are on some of the socials. Um, I, I personally don't, don't do much of that, but we have some other people who deal with it. I don't like Facebook, so I, don't, I try not to use it. Uh, but uh, come talk to us uh, on the socials or just through old-fashioned email. We, we have email. Uh, the website's the best place to find all of that. In terms of what can you do, there is... So much. Um, one, join together with other people and talk about privacy um, and, and, you know, make it something that, yes, it's something we should totally have. For example, privacy is the default. Someone else is being nosy and wants to know something about you and you don't want to tell them. Like, ask them why. Why do you need to know this? Like, if you're at the shop, sometimes you go there and they say, oh, what's your postcode? Because they're trying to do marketing and surveillance stuff on you. So ask them why they want to know. Just asking that question is often enough for people to just back off and not, not ask anymore, not insist. So that shows that they don't really need to know that. So just do that as, as the first thing. Um, and if they insist, 
like, particularly with web forms and things where you can't actually, you know, tell them. It's like, why do you want to know this? What exactly is it? Oh, read our privacy policy. Yeah, like, I've got the time to waste. Um, just lie to them. So the postcode for Antarctica is 7151. That's a really fun one to use. So if they're going to insist on information that they don't really have any right to and you can't trust them to keep it secured or private, just lie. Um, pollute the bucket of data sets with garbage. They'll give up eventually if we make it useless. Amazing. Um, if someone doesn't want to respect you enough, they don't want to respect your privacy, then they ha- you don't have any moral obligation to be honest with them. They're not being honest with you. They're not showing that they're trustworthy. Um, then go into your devices. So everyone has lots of electronic devices these days. They do have certain privacy settings in there. Go and explore what they are. Um, Apple's iPhone does this pretty well. It's recently had some settings in there where you can say, don't track me. Um, I think it actually is phrased differently, like, yes, I will allow people to track me. But who turns that on? Mm-hmm. Like, yes, I, totally, I want someone to install a camera into my rectum. Like, what? That's, that's deeply strange. Um, but, I, you know, look, no king shaming. If people want to do that, okay. Um, what people get up to in the privacy of their own home um, between consenting adults is of no concern of mine. And they um, should be allowed to keep that private. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, like I said, what happens between consenting adults is private, and that's that's totally fine. I, I have no interest in that, and other people shouldn't either. Yes. Um, um, so, yeah, if you're not actively using something and it is providing you with a benefit, just turn it off. It doesn't need any of that surveillance stuff. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Justin. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk us through this. Um, I know that sometimes these discussions about privacy can be a bit abstract and and people aren't necessarily sure how to take steps, but you've outlined some really clear options there. So um, appreciate you making the time and hope you have a great day. Likewise. Thank you so much. And that was Justin Warren, Chair of Electronic Frontiers Australia, who joined us to discuss online privacy and digital surveillance in Privacy Week 2022, which is an Australian government initiative running from the 2nd to the 8th of May. And Electronic Frontiers Australia is a not-for-profit national organisation working to promote and protect digital rights. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR, 8.55am, and it is 7.46 in the morning. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. And now we will be joined by Dakshayini Surukumani, who is the Director of Tech Policy at Reset Australia, a think tank and research organisation working the title Digital Threats to Democracy. They are also a PhD candidate at ANU looking at the impact of technology in social welfare and border policing. 
and they join us today to discuss how YouTube's algorithm contributes to promoting misogynistic and extremist content to Australian boys and men. Please be advised that the interview may discuss intimate partner violence and may be distressing. Um, and it will go for around 15 minutes, so if you want to come back at 8, that is also fine. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, I know that uh, with the recent election that is coming up, uh, both major parties have made women's safety a, and well-being a key component of their policy platforms, uh, particularly the need to address the drivers of violence against women. Could we maybe start with how YouTube's algorithms and content contribute to this violence? Yes, that's a great question. Um, so, sorry, there's a slight delay, so hopefully my sound's okay. Yeah, it's all um, good. Oh, okay. So, as you've said, gender equity, violence against women, it's been really elevated in our public discourse and it's been highlighted as an election issue which is really critical. Um, and the elements that we largely discuss are really important. So things like safety in the workplace, sexual violence, consent, um, intimate partner violence, uh, you know, issues of pay equity, invisible labour, those kinds of things. But there's this kind of other element that we're yet to grapple with that potentially contributes to all of these other important issues, and that's the role of big tech's algorithms um, in encouraging these kind of dehumanising, disrespectful and hateful attitudes towards women, um, including trans women and also gender diverse people. And so uh, given that we're kind of inhabiting digital worlds more and more, it's really important to grapple with what these algorithms mean for how we treat um, women and other genders as well. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like even as a YouTube user, uh, you can fall into a hole very easily of like the related... Um, related content and I can't imagine what what that would really look like and I know that Recent Australia um, recently published a short-term qualitative study called Algorithms as a Weapon Against uh, uh, against Women. Uh, would you mind speaking on maybe what the research um, found out or like what it was planning on um, conducting? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so yeah, we kind of um, had noticed that the ASIO threat assessment had come out and said that the online radicalisation of young people had really grown, particularly during COVID, and it kind of highlighted young men, you know, young people as young as 13. And so this was kind of happening at the same time that there was this growing body of international research around the growth of right-wing extremism, um, which kind of includes extreme misogyny. And so we kind of just became interested in this area and decided to run this experiment where we essentially, we partnered with um, an organisation called the Institute for Strategic Dialogue and we set up 10 experimental accounts. So essentially pretending to be young men online. Um, so it was 10 accounts that were set up. Half of them were under 18, half were over 18. Uh, and eight of them were seeded with content that you could describe as kind of, you know, um, from between the centre of the political spectrum and kind of heading towards the right, all Australian content. And then we had two control accounts that were seated with no preferences at all. And over a two-week period, we kind of monitored what the algorithm recommended, essentially. And um, what we found is that after two weeks, particularly on this YouTube Shorts algorithm, which is like their new fe feature that's their answer to TikTok, of a short-form video content, um, and um, all of the accounts, including the controls, were kind of driven towards what's known as manosphere content. So what that means is just, you know, um, content that promotes 
warped views of masculinity and, and encourages yeah. hateful kind of yeah dehumanizing attitudes towards women. So yeah, so it was quite a shocking finding, I guess, but it's in line with what um, other international researchers have also found. Yeah, I'm also curious to know that uh, if they if you found that there was a difference between over 18s and under 18s, and if the content maybe was more harmful or more targeted to minors, or did you find that it was uh, better for, not better, but like uh, maybe less <laughs> less yeah, damaging yeah. for uh, over damaging. 18s? Yeah, no, it, that's a great question. So over the two-week period, because it was such a short study, and as mm-hmm. you described, it was qualitative, um, we, we couldn't see much of um, that. It was difficult to see um, what the kind of standard YouTube algorithm was doing, but in terms of the shorts algorithm, it was quite clear that there was no difference in the content being served to over and under 18-year-old accounts. So that was quite disturbing. Um, yeah, so there's no kind of real protection for, for under 18-year-olds. Yeah, knowing that the content is quite similar um, just shows that, you know, there definitely needs to be more protections in place. It is interesting that you say that, it, uh, especially with COVID, there's been a rise. Um, yeah. And... I guess I also wanted to ask maybe why do you think that this misogynistic content has been so, like, alluring (laughs) to young men and boys? Like, is it some sort of unique vulnerability? I'm not really sure. That's a great question. I guess the way that we were thinking about it based on this experiment is not necessarily that it's alluring, but more maybe that the... Um, algorithm is the is essentially promoting this kind of content to young men online, whether or not they are particularly allured or attracted to it. So it kind of demonstrates how these algorithms are biased in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not that surprising in, in a sense that we know that these big tech business models are designed to amplify extreme and sensational content because they want to keep us on the platform. They want us glued to the platform so that they can collect our data, serve us ads, et cetera. And so um, we know that it, it's kind of biased in this way. And, and I think that kind of raises the – it's interesting in the context of a, an election because, in you know, given that a lot of us rely on social media for our political content, that kind of calls that into question a bit because it shows that these platforms aren't kind of neutral actors. They, they have agendas themselves. Mm-hmm. And so we have to kind of keep that in mind. Yeah, absolutely. And also knowing that, um, you know, it's still an algorithm, but it's still made by people and people have biases and uh, flaws as well. And I know that Reset Australia has also called for a comprehensive regulatory framework uh, governing social media platforms like YouTube. So I guess what does this framework look like in practice and what challenges do you feel may arise when trying to implement this? Because it feels somewhat impossible. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's a big ask, yes. Yeah, and I guess where it is a, it is going to be a big undertaking, certainly not <laughs> doubting that. It's, it's quite significant. But I guess we've, we've really relied on, on big tech self-regulation up until now, and, and this is where it's gotten us. So we, we don't see any other alternative than to kind of seriously consider a more comprehensive, comprehensive framework, as you described. But what is the really good news is that um, the EU has just passed a Digital Services Act, which has been kind of under negotiation for years now, and it kind of includes quite a lot of the measures that we would like to see. And so it's really handy in that we could adopt 
um, much of that regulatory framework here. So to give kind of tangible examples, uh, for instance, you know, our current framework for thinking about a regulatory framework for thinking about online harms is very much about content moderation, so taking down individual pieces of content. We've also seen, you know, the anti-trolling bill, so that's kind of um, framing the problem as being about, you know, individual bad actors that are trolling us that are anonymous online. Um, but the Digital Services Act and what we'd like to see Australia's regulatory framework move towards is kind of viewing it more that, okay, we need to look at the algorithm itself, we need to look at the systems and processes um, of these platforms and kind of do things like, you know, to give you tangible uh, examples, kind of have um, algorithmic audits that are undertaken by a regulatory body and have kind of data sharing mandates that would require data to be shared um, and then actual hard penalties for, uh, you know, not adhering to um, particular um content or content frameworks and, and kind of not making the required adaptations to the algorithm to kind of mitigate the harms. And so these kinds of things are, are really possible, we think. There is kind of appetite to do this. Mm-hmm. The other kind of tangible things we'd like to see, you know, as I mentioned, because our framework is, is really geared towards online harms being kind of individual, so, you know, a specific person um, experiences a harm, and of course that, that's true and that's important and we've all experienced that, I'm sure, but then there's also these kind of broader risks like community and societal risks, and when it comes to the, the risks highlighted by this report, for instance, where it's against a whole group of people, um, and, you know, we've seen that playing out in the election against trans people, against um, refugees, and, you know, et cetera. And so when, when it comes to this group-based kind of um, harm, that's not really covered in our legislation. And so we'd like to see that changed as well. Um, and ultimately, like, finally, we, we really need strong regulators uh, that are equipped and resourced to, to actually enact the framework that we um, that we craft. And so... Yeah, it's it's such a great question, and I love that you asked. Like, what are the challenges that we foresee? Because <laughs> <laughs> there's many there's many challenges, of course. Um, but I think you know one of the biggest ones is definitely just what is our paradigm or framework for even thinking about online harm. Mm-hmm. And I think you know if we could shift that to be like we really need to look at the systems and processes. Um, we, we need to move away from, you know, the large, the widely critiqued um, legislation like the anti-trolling bill, for instance, and, and look to kind of more comprehensive measures, I think, yep. will be in a, in a better place, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you. That was very definitely very insightful. Um, I think also just very quickly for the last final question, if someone we know or a loved one is, like, engaging in this content, what adv- like avenues for support are available? Yeah, that's a really good one. I guess our observation in deep diving into this issue is that there's a major gap here in terms of support services. It's yeah. quite a specific issue. Um, and, yeah, it seems like there are some organisations that are kind of exploring educational offerings um, and other supports uh, for whether, you know, young men and, and other groups. Like, for example, an organisation called The Man Cave is specifically kind of looking at this at the moment. But I think it's it's really clear to us that there needs to be more investment and thought about, yeah, specific interventions that could be put into place for people who are on this trajectory because it's, 
yeah, it's it's kind of at a point where we all know someone that's been impacted in this way, yeah. and yeah, it's really it's it's really personal for many people. So, yeah, we, we think more investment needs to be made. Yep. Well, yeah, there's definitely a lot of um, a lot of drivers of violence, and knowing that. Uh, Algorithms and tech is a big part of everybody's life these days, and there needs to be more investment, more regulation. Uh, but, yeah, I just want to thank you for coming on the show today and taking your time out of your morning. <laughs> I really appreciate it. But, yeah. Oh, uh, it's so fun. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks worries. for having me. No worries. Thank you. Have a good day. <laughs> you too. Bye. Bye. You just heard from Lakshani uh, Suri Kumaran, who is the Director of Tech Policy at Reset Australia, and they joined us today to discuss YouTube's algorithms um, promoting misogynistic and other extremist content to Australian boys and young men. Please be advised that the interview did discuss um, some forms of intimate partner violence that may be distressing, and please feel free to call Lifeline on 131114 and or 1-800-RESPECT on 1-800-737-732. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Come and at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchus Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, worker stories and union news. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. Tune in to Stick Together, all about workers' rights and social justice. 8.30am Wednesday, 7am Saturday. Or listen on demand on 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 8.02 in the morning. And just a reminder, you might be listening to this via your car radio. You might be listening to this online. And if you haven't uh, heard about that, well, you can listen to us online. That's at 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And also you can listen back to all of your favorite Thursday breakfast content at 3cr.org.au forward slash Thursday dash breakfast. Now, we are joined by Joshua Tavares, who's a longtime Collingwood resident and soul funk singer, who joins us to discuss the resident-led push to save Collingwood's public housing green space. Along with the pushback against new development on the Collingwood estate, Joshua has been involved in community events and initiatives, including the Collingwood Underground Roller Disco and Dolphins Gym, which is a black queer gym partnering up with Koori Pride. Joshua, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolute pleasure, and um, I'm really glad that we get to talk about this because I think we're sort of bringing the show to a close with a tangible action that people can get involved in in the area where 3CR is located. Um, 
So, first of all, I was hoping that we could kind of speak a bit about the context of the Victorian government's plan to build a new, uh, new apartment blocks over green and recreational space on Wellington Street in Collingwood and how this kind of fits into the state government's approach to considerations of affordable versus public housing. So, the state government is winding down public housing and they're winding up social housing, but public housing sits underneath the umbrella of social housing. And they're not just doing this um, in Collingwood, but they're doing it statewide over public housing land. So in every suburb, if there's public housing, they're, they're, they're erecting new buildings on that public, on that green, open air green space. Um, and this is a state initiative, so it bypasses all local council objections and everything like that. Mm. Just to give a little bit more context. Um, but... Yeah, Wellington Street, where this built, the one... So we're calling everyone that lives in public housing because this affects all public housing in, in Victoria. Um, and so what was the next bit? What is the difference between social housing and public housing? Oh, yeah, I mean, like, definitely feel free to go into that. I was just, yeah, thinking about how this development really fits into the government's kind of priorities around, um, you know, social housing versus public housing. Well, they're not prioritising any more public housing. They're mm -hmm. not building any more public housing. They're building social housing and affordable housing. But social housing, public housing, so then people understand what public housing is, it's capped at 25% of what you earn up to market value. So it doesn't matter how much you're earning or how little you're earning. Um, you can... You still have a place to live. So social housing is 80% of what you earn. I mean, 80% of market value. And in Collingwood, that's, what, 500 to 800 bucks a week. 80% mm -hmm. of that is um, much more than what you earn on Centrelink. Yeah. If, you, if you're on Centrelink. So for whom are these new dwellings meant for, you know? Yeah. They're not so exclusive for the people that actually need it. No, absolutely. And with so many of these redevelopments, um, you know, government is, is kind of marketing it as uh, this transformation uh, that is like a social investment, but really ends up uh, functionally pushing communities that have been established over long periods of time in these areas out. And, you know, um, you know, the march of gentrification keeps going forward. Um, mm -hmm. And so you you do a lot of community work and event organizing that relies on these spaces um, around Collingwood, and I was hoping that you could tell us a bit about what it means to you and also to other residents of the public housing blocks to be able to access places like the underground car park um, and also the green space above ground, and particularly over the past two years during COVID. Oh, my God. During the last two years, we, we weren't able to access our green spaces. And our, we weren't able to access the underground car park um, because of restrictions and stuff. Mm. Um, and just to give the pe people a little bit more context, this is like our front yard or and backyard. So it's quite hard living in a town without having to access, without having proper access to open air space, you know. Um, and we know that people were struggling through that time of um, restrictions not being able to 
get out into public space and stuff. So we're, we're not arguing that we don't need more homes, more dwellings for people to have, but we're arguing why are we taking up this space? Um, you know, Collingwood's already considered high-density living. Why are we taking over open-air space? Why are we building up more dwellings on what's considered already um, high-density? And putting more people on the same amount of land, you know? Yeah. And, like... Um, oh, sorry. Go on. Yeah, then I was about to go into um, just talking about the underground car park. Yeah, absolutely. So they want to... So we've been using the underground car park as a community space for the last 23 to 25 years. Um, people might know of the change play that happens down there, which is a hip, interactive hip-hop play that Izzy Brown puts on. People might know about play on that happens down there that takes music from Hamer Hall, um, classical music, um, new works and old works. You get four movements, then it turns into a discotheque. Um, people might know about the Collingwood Underground Lawn Disco that happens down there. My dad's gym is in that space as well. Um, and, you know, these are grassroots, community-owned, community-ran initiatives that combat um, disenfranchisement of our people on their state, being able to access things that, you know, due to gentrification, the inaccessibility of events and doing stuff. So we, we've created our own stuff on the event, on their state, so then people can access it. The roller disco, the change, play, play on where economically inclusive to be socially inclusive mm-hmm. where you know inclusive in all the matters we know how to be inclusive um so to take these things away from us what tools are they leaving us to combat um you know quote-unquote antisocial behavior and these things that um i guess make public housing, give public housing the bad reputation or the stigma that it has. Yeah, I Um, think, like, so much of what you've talked about as well speaks to the real importance of having these spaces available to residents for community building and for joy and cultural production, for mm -hmm. recreation. And, Mm -hmm. like, I, I was also wondering if you wanted to comment on how, you know, concerns about class and race come into this um, when we think about, like, who gets to enjoy public space, who gets to access recreational space. You know, if we think about places like around um, around Kew in the eastern suburbs where there's so much money that goes into investment of places like walking tracks and also, you know, public parks oh. and that kind of thing. But then you think about the, the Collingwood green space and the idea that, oh, like, you know, it's public housing residents, so we can just, you know, afford to get rid of that space and put up more high-density housing there. Did you want to comment on that? Yeah, it's just crazy to me to think that, um, you know, the classism in that, the racism in that, um, in that action is pretty hectic for me. Um, And... You know, it's not just people that live on public housing land that uses that allotment of green space. It's people in the greater area that use it as well. So um, why 
you know, we, we don't even have proper facilities, amenities on the green space that is nearby to us. You know, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I mean, like this just really comes back into those concerns about housing justice and, um, you know, and who gets to yeah enjoy these spaces. Um, and so you've been involved in this organizing to save the Collingwood green space. Uh, can you tell us a bit about the action that's happening tomorrow and what residents are calling for? So we're meeting outside of Richard Wynn's office. We do have a petition for people to sign up online. That's um, Save Collingwood's Green Space at the Change Org. Is that what it is? Yeah, and no, I've got. We'll we'll pop the link up in the notes. But yeah, change that one. Yeah, <laughs> I forgot what I got. I forgot what the the link is. No, you're um, right. At half past four, four thirty, Richard Bin's office, Gertrude Street. If people don't know about it, come down, show your support um, for your neighbours. You know, for the people that live in your area, and um, show that the government can't just do this stuff. You know, and the government are meaning to have a treaty in place, the state government, meaning to have a treaty in place by the end of the year, that this goes, this will go against the treaty. Because they haven't consulted with our First Nations people, they haven't consulted with um, anyone, really. So, I don't know, it just seems bizarre to me in that way. Yeah, Yay, definitely. for the treaty, but, you know... Why have a treaty if you just want to disregard it? Yeah, I mean, like, and and so many, like, you know, there are, like, mob that live down there that use those spaces as well. Mm -hmm. There's been, you know, a long history of Aboriginal community building and organizing in this area as well. And, you know, to, to kind of think about the fact that people's, feelings and attachments to place can be so easily disregarded mm-hmm. um yeah is really is really shocking so um thank you so much joshua for talking to us about this is there anything else that you wanted to mention before we wrap up um i guess yeah come down tomorrow half past four we do want it to be as peaceful and as um gentle as we can because we don't, I, you know, I guess that's always the thing of, like, appeasing to government. Like, we want to be coming across as nicely as we can, but, you know, emotions are quite heated by other residents. And But we, we, we would love to see people's support for us there. Yeah. And we'd love to have you all join in. And, you know, as we make some noise up front, um, from to actively listen to us. Richard Wynn came down last Friday and he said to a resident, it doesn't matter what you do, we're still going to build. So, you know, we we found that quite rude. We found that Mm. um, just just the the classism in that, in that, in that phrase. Yeah. And that's our, that's our local official. That is crazy. Yeah. And so I just, yeah, want to echo that encouragement for people to calm down and, you know, show show Richard Wynn, show the Victorian government that the voices of public housing residents do matter and their concerns should be front and center when thinking about these kinds of developments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it will be different if 
the housing was public housing for us, it would be a totally different story. Mm-hmm. But it's not for us. It's not even accessible for people that need it. So who are these new people moving in? Yeah. You know, it just it's it's doctors, it's um, lawyers that can afford cheaper rent in Collingwood. That you know, subsidised rent, but it's not for people that actually need proper subsidised rent or, you know, He's dwelling. Sorry. No, no, you're all right, 100%. And um, thank you so much, Joshua, for making the time to talk about this this morning um, and once again encourage people to get down. We'll have links in our bio to the petition and uh, information that you can read up on about about the pushback. So take care, Joshua. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. appreciate it. I'm going to get out into the sun and walk this dog that I've got. All right. Well, take care (laughs) and um, have a great day. Thank you. Bye. And that was Joshua Tavares, who's a longtime Collingwood resident and soul funk singer, who joined us to discuss the resident-led push to save Collingwood's public housing green space. And along with that pushback against new development on the Collingwood estate, Joshua's been involved in community events and initiatives, including the, um, the Collingwood Underground Roller Disco and Dolphins Gym, which is a black queer gym partnering up with Koori Pride. And you can find out more and sign the petition organized by Collingwood Public Housing Residents at www.change.org forward slash p forward slash save dash Collingwood dash green dash space or just look up save Collingwood green space on change.org and as Joshua mentioned there is an action happening tomorrow to deliver that petition to Richard Wynn really important for people to get involved and get down there to support public housing residents um You know, we've spoken about public housing and the Victorian government's big housing build a lot on 3CR Thursday breakfast. And this is a part of, you know, our physical community. These folks are down the road. They are members of our radio broadcasting community. So we really encourage people who support 3CR to go and, um, you know, show your support for public housing residents as well. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast, and it is 8.17 in the morning. It is Thursday, the 5th of May, and we'll head to a CSA and be right back. A proud black man, proud black man, you should not wonder. Strong spirit, First Nations issues, families, people, and stories from a First Nations perspective. Mondays at 1 p.m. on 3CR. Proud black man, proud black man, it should not wonder. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and we are going to go to a track. Now, this is one that came out earlier this year. Oh, actually, sorry, late last year, December, my apologies, um, by Kobe Spice, Sevy, and Utility. This is Fiji Water. Everybody like Riri down the port Big vibes they wanna explore it I got the drip like Fiji water Like Fiji water I got the drip like Fiji water Like Fiji water I got the drip like Fiji water Hollow spicy yoda, body like Riri down the port Big vibes they wanna explore it I got the drip like Fiji water Like Fiji water I got the drip like Fiji water Like Fiji water 
profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter.
That was Valley of Peace by Tay Mori, and before that we listened to Fiji Water by Kobe Spice, Sevi, and Utility, and hope that look, put a little pep in your step. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, nice, chill, uh, getting you ready for the day, and um, we're going to start wrapping up our show for this week. So we had a bunch on today. First up, you heard some Vox Pops from Sunday's May Day Rally, and that was Interviewed, interviews by Giselle Hanna from Accent of Women and Asia-Pacific Currents on 3CR. And uh, Giselle spoke with Michael from the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, Mary from Safe Public Housing Collective, and some other attendees at Sunday's May Day Rally. And then we were joined by Justin Warren, the chair of Electronic Frontiers Australia, and he joined us to discuss online privacy and digital surveillance in Privacy Week 
2022, uh, which runs from 2nd to the 8th of May. And then we also were joined by Dakshani Surikumaran, uh, who is the Director of Tech Policy at Reset Australia and also a PhD candidate at ANU. And they join us to discuss how YouTube's algorithms contribute to promoting misogynistic and other extremist content to Australian boys and young men. And finally, we heard from Joshua Tavares, who's a longtime Collingwood resident and soul funk singer, who joined us to discuss the resident-led push to save Collingwood's public housing, green space and recreational area. And along with that pushback against new development on the Collingwood estate to build, quote-unquote, affordable housing, which is at 80% of market value, Joshua has been involved in community events and initiatives that include the Collingwood Underground Roller Disco and Dolphins Gym. You can find out more and sign the petition organized by Collingwood Public Housing Residents at change.org forward slash p forward slash save dash Collingwood dash green dash space. And we'll also pop a link in the show notes to let people know about where they can find more information about attending the action tomorrow, which is to deliver that petition from Collingwood Public Housing Residents to Richard Wynn. And, yeah, just so important for people to get involved in the local community area. But, yeah, um, that's all we've got on for today. A pleasure, as always, and we will catch you next week on Thursday Morning Breakfast. Bye. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.